turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel. Chapter 9 is where we are going to pick up Samuel's narrative. Just a, a run-in for this morning. Julie and I, we've been watching this, uh, this Chinese drama on Netflix. It's like 70 episodes, so I don't want to encourage you to invest that much of your life into it. But this is what's been really cool, is it's sitting in an emperor culture. So when we sit in our context where we were last week in Samuel, the nation of Israel has just rejected God, declared their independence from God as their sovereign because they want a king just like all the other nations around them. And why this, this series has been so instructive for me is we live in a culture where we don't have a sovereign. I don't bend my knee to anybody. I do to the Lord, clearly. I do to other human beings in service, in love. But when you sit in like a government authority, a king, a sovereign, an emperor, I don't bend my knee to any political official as a person. Yeah, there's respect with the office. We understand those things. But we don't, we don't abide in a culture where this kind of honor, this level of respect. And the, the we can sit in the information and I can understand the information. I've studied the information before. I get it. But when you have that presented before you visually in, the, in this series, again, the king is always, dad is on his throne. When sons and daughters come in and they're paying respect and honor to their father, they're on their knees and their head is on the floor. That's what worship is. That's what the definition of worship is is that submission. And again, there's love there, there's respect there, there's honoring there. In this episode, we're watching all the infighting between all the bad sons who are trying to take God's kingdom. This is what the nation of Israel is doing. This is what our own heart's doing. You know, as the theme of the, this thing is going through, there's that good son who is fighting for righteousness in the culture and all that. Anyways, it presents this really incredible picture for me of just this, this um, the relationship that we have with our God is king. And this is the idea. When you receive Jesus as your Lord, he is your Lord of lords. He is your king of kings. He is the God of gods. And you were invited into his presence, into his throne room continually as kids. But there is a, still a separation of respect. Like we like to think that we can just go run in and jump up in dad's lap anytime we want, right? If dad invites us to, sure. But when you enter into his presence, there's, there's a respect there, there's an honor there, there's a recognition of his power, of his authority, of his love, of his grace, of his law. So we sit with the nation of Israel here in chapter eight last week, they've rejected that relationship. Now. Do they, are they aware of what they're doing? To some degree, yes. To some degree, no. Was Peter aware when Jesus says, you are going to deny me three times before the rooster crows? And Peter goes throughout the night and he denies knowing Jesus three times. Do you think that Peter was denying Jesus in his own mind, in his own heart? Or he was just trying to protect himself in the moment, right? He was just trying to protect himself in the moment. But when he heard the rooster crow, what did he do? He wept bitterly because then he had an understanding of what he did. I guarantee in this, in this time, in this culture, 
the nation of Israel, they have a little bit of understanding what they're doing, but as a whole, they really don't know what they're doing and the consequences. So as we transition into chapter 9 this morning, they are going to be given the king that they asked for, and this is Saul. For those of you who are familiar with the Old Testament, you are already familiar with Saul's nature and his character. For a very biblical character study, one of the greatest things that I learned from Saul's, Saul's life is the definition of what it means to be an insecure man or an insecure woman. He's, he's uncomfortable with himself. He's uncomfortable with the position that God has placed him in. And he makes a lot of decisions that are based upon the discomfort that he's in. And because he is insecure in himself and because he does not trust in his God, Saul makes many poor decisions. And those poor decisions lead to his, we're going to watch him be anointed next week as king. Well, we're going to watch him be anointed today, anointed again next week. And later on, we watch this because of his disobedience, he disqualifies himself from this position. Now, that doesn't mean that he was cut off from God. I have an outstanding question mark in my mind whether or not Saul is in God's eternal presence or Saul was cast away from God's presence. I don't know. I don't know what it is about Saul and his character and his life that draws out of me a lot of compassion and sympathy. There's a lot of characters in the Bible where I feel, you know, just cut their heads off, Lord. Like King Ahab, you know, the guy, I just, I just want to see Ahab and Jezebel dead as I read through that narrative, and God forgive my heart. But there's something about Saul that it just brings out, oh, it doesn't have to be that way. And this is where we're going to begin this morning is his potential. So I want you to really just press into this idea of the narrative that's being presented. As we're going through this section, we are given Samuel and Saul as a contrast of character. As we continue on the narrative, it's going to be, allow us to contrast Saul and David, their character together. So if you're familiar with the word, I'm going to throw a bunch of lines into the future, just connection points to his relationship with David that's going to go on in the future. But we really want to just press into, don't forget everything you know, but I want you to sit in this narrative with just, just a fresh um, opinion of Saul as we read through it. And just, just look at the description that's being given. So chapter 9, verse 1 of 1 Samuel says, There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Machorath, the son of Aphia, a Benjamite, a mighty man of power. And he had a choice and handsome son whose name was Saul. There was not a more handsome man more handsome person than he among the children of Israel. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. And this is what I've titled this morning's message is Head and Shoulders. Um, you look at this context of the, the family that Saul is from. His dad, it's, he's this man of power. More than likely, it's a definition of his personal and household wealth and not of his military power. 
If you know, again, the history, the last few chapters of Judges, we see a civil war in the nation of Israel where the tribe of Benjamin is almost cut off because of their sin. Absolutely horrific chapters. But as we sit in the, the, the subsequence, uh, you know, the consequences of that, the culture that comes out of that, Saul is a product of this tribe, the least of the tribes. He's, a, he's going to be the product of a time where there's, there's many, I guarantee, stereotypes and stones to throw at anybody from the tribe of Benjamin during this time. So again, he's, he's from a position of a family that has some wealth, so he's well-to-do and all that that would mean in his household and in his time. But the major emphasis that's placed on Saul's character is what? His outward appearance. He's shoulders and head taller than anyone around him. And we were at Calvary in Salt Lake, and the boys are young and growing up. There was an assistant pastor there. His name's Pastor Jim. Jim's 6'7". So automatically, Jim must be the boss because of how big Jim is. So, but you get this, you get this picture in, in the culture. The average height of a man at this time was 5'5". Five, five. The average. So that means there's people that five six, five seven, five eight, five nine. There's some outliers. You put Saul, he is all the way at the high end of the outliers. When you looked at him, you were looking up. He was a man that stood above the crowd. He was good looking. He was young. He was desirable. Ladies, guys, whatever, whatever image you have and there there is a well-built man there is a powerful man there is a man filled with athletic potential that's the imagery that you need to have in your mind in regards to Saul and don't lose that imagery as we carry forward into the narrative when he gets old and insane and crazy he's still a big powerful desired man and this is what his name means it means that he's asked for now remember with, uh, with Samuel, his mom asked God for Samuel. She was barren. And she names him Samuel because God heard her prayer. And again, here in the name of Saul, you're getting this. This is the man that the people have asked for. Last chapter in chapter 8, we're giving the, given the instruction of just the, the warnings, so to say, of what the king is going to do, what he's going to act like. But ultimately, here is the man that the people are asking for. And you sit in this time in history, those individuals who are lifted up in the culture, who we still have writings about, the powerful kings of old, they were big, powerful military men. And that's what Saul is to become as we even sit in this this morning. Again, remember, this is a transition from judges to king in many ways. Saul is being lifted up in that position of judge, but even higher as a permanent king and that central authority and all that it means. Now, verse 3, we get a further snapshot of his character. But again, I want you to hold on to this idea of potential because we're going to start talking about some of the negative things that are being pulled out. Now, the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. And Kish said to his son, Saul, please take one of the servants with you and arise, go and look for the donkeys. So he passed through the mountains of Ephraim and through the land of Shalisha, and they did not find them. They passed through the land of Shalim, and they, did, and they were not there. Then they passed through the land of the Benjamites, but they did not find them. 
When they came to the land of Zuf, Saul said to his servant who was with them, come, let us return, lest my father cease caring about the donkeys. And he becomes worried, becomes anxious about us. Now, the imagery that's being pulled out about Saul's character is he's a bad shepherd. So fast forward to David's life. Where do we find David? David is a young shepherd boy in his father's house as a good shepherd out there taking care of his father's herd. In the snapshot, we're not told that it's Saul's fault that the donkeys are missing, but the donkeys are missing. And as a shepherd, and you are being sent out to find a flock that has escaped for one reason or another, we're not told how long it's been, but he doesn't have a clue of how to look and where to look. The, the, the locations that we are told is a 60-mile radius. I mean, he went far and wide looking for these donkeys. But the imagery that's being pulled out is he's a bad shepherd. Now, ultimately, God sent the donkeys in a different direction to keep Saul wandering because he has a plan and purpose in Saul's life that's going to be brought about. But again, the text, the narrative is contrasting, giving us a snapshot of his bad shepherdness in contrast to both Samuel and in the future David. And then verse 6 he being the servant says to him being Saul look now there is in the city a man of God and he is an honorable man all that he says surely comes to pass so let us go there perhaps he can show us the way that we should go now this is another snapshot that's being pulled out is Saul is totally ignorant to Samuel We're told in snapshots of Samuel's life that all Israel, now paint all Israel with a broad brush, everybody knows who Samuel is. They know who he is as a judge, as a political leader in the nation. They know who he is as a spiritual leader in the nation. And here we have a snapshot of Zuf. And if you go all the way back to chapter 1, verse 1, this is Samuel's hometown, So this is Ramah, where he is from, and it's going to be the major location for where we are in this section. Here Samuel, or here Saul is in Samuel's hometown, and he doesn't even know it. Again, it's it's a picture and a snapshot of Saul was raised in a home who believes in God, believes in Yahweh, the Almighty God, the God of the nation of Israel, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of Moses. He's been raised in a cultural religion, but he, as a young man, has zero recognition. And and we're going to watch this carry forward into his own life. His understanding of God's law, of God's nature, God's character, of those who are seeking him and following him and serving him, the ignorance in his naivete, so to say, is all over the narrative of his character. So he has to have his servant tells him, hey, we're in Samuel's hometown, and Samuel's an honorable man. Whatever he says, it surely comes to pass. Again, we already have those snapshots concerning Samuel. Verse 7, then Saul says to his servant, but look, if we go, what shall we bring the man? For the bread is... Uh, bread in our vessels is all gone, and there is no present to bring the man of God. What do we have? And the servant answered, answered Saul again, Look, I have here at hand one-fourth of a shekel of silver. I will give that to the man of God to tell us our way. Formerly in Israel, 
When a man went to inquire of God, to seek God, he spoke thus, come, let us go to the seer. For he who is now called a prophet was formerly called a seer, just a cultural snapshot there. But another idea to pull out is just Saul's lack of preparation. The servant has in hand what is necessary, but Saul does not have what, in ha- what is necessary in his hand. Again, it's, it's pointing to his lack of preparation. So he's not prepared. He's a bad shepherd. He's ignorant to the spiritual and political uh, climate of the days, ignorant to these things, naive of them, But boy, is he good looking on the outside. And we see that here in a second. Then Saul says to his servant, well said, come, let us go. So they went to the city where the man of God was. And they went up the hill to the city. There they met some young women going out to draw water and said to them, is the seer here? And ladies, you gotta gotta picture the drama here. They're oohing and on over him. This is just like Jacob and Rachel watering all of the camels, and you know Moses there with Zipporah and all those daughters, the whole scenes of women drawing water, and here comes these manly men and showing their, their bronze, so to say. They're oohing and on over him. They answered and say, yes, there he is, just ahead of you, hurry now. For today he came to the city because there is a sacrifice of the people today on the high place. Now, it's going to mention the high place multiple times. This is the naughty place of the culture, so to say. Most of the times when the high place is mentioned, this is the, wherever the cults of the day were worshiping their gods. It was always in the heights because you're closest to the heavens. This is where they did their sacrifices. All kinds of debauchery is going on in those places. That is not this place. So in 1 Kings, we're told that there are multiple high places that the Jews would worship God at. One, because the temple was not built. Two, at this time in the culture's life, in Samuel's life, there is no tabernacle, right? We've already sat in the narrative that the tabernacle that was in, um, help me out, where was it? Shiloh? Is that where it was? Shiloh? Yes, when the tabernacle was in Shiloh, it's been destroyed by the Philistines. We're told that uh, Samuel has built an altar in his home in Ramah. So our understanding is that this high place, that this is the location of the altar that Samuel has built in worship to God for the sacrifices that are going on. Most of the commentators think that this is probably a new moon sacrifice, beginning of a month. However, it could be a different feast, but... Something is going on where the people are coming together. The ladies in verse 13 telling Saul and his servant, as soon as you come into the city, you will surely find him before he goes up to the high place to eat. For the people will not eat until he comes because he must bless the sacrifice. And just side note, that's not mentioned anywhere else in the Old Testament in regards to a sacrifice being blessed, but here it is in Samuel. Afterward, those who are invited who are invited, will eat. Now, therefore, go up, for about this time you will find him. So they went up to the city. As they were coming into the city, there was Samuel coming out toward them on his way up to the high place. Now, the Lord, Yahweh, had said to Samuel in his ear, and literally, it's God uncovered his ear. 
You know, whether this was a dream, this is in his head and his heart, whether God was speaking audibly to Samuel, don't know. But the whole idea is God uncovered his ear so that the voice of God that he would hear uh, told Samuel in his ear the day before Saul came, saying, tomorrow, about this time, I'll send you a man from the land of Benjamin. Just kind of side note. Anybody in this room ever heard God this way? This specific, tomorrow, at this time, you're going to run into this person, and this is what's going on. Anybody? Yeah, I did. Me neither. So I want you to just understand. You're like, this is unique. It's specific. It's a singular event. It's an event, clearly, where Samuel, as a prophet, he has heard God's voice multiple times and is proclaiming God's voice and his word multiple times. Um, but again, this is, this is a unique circumstance. But Samuel heard God's voice many times, even in his beginning when he was crying out to him, Samuel, Samuel. All right. You shall anoint him commander over my people Israel. Anoint, this is the whole idea of Messiah. That's what Messiah Christ means. You shall anoint him. Commander is the Hebrew word negid. It is not the word for king. Saul is crowned king and he is called king. But the emphasis in the beginning here is he's being anointed as commander. This is a ruler. This is a military commander um, and king, clearly. But again, melech is the Hebrew word for king and a different word is intentionally used here. Even though the people have rejected Yahweh as their king, God has not rejected them. You're going to anoint him commander over my people, Israel, that he may save my people from the hand of the Philistines. For I have looked upon my people because their cry has come to me. So we can tell earlier on, we were told that all the days of Samuel that the Philistines have been subdued, that subjugation is no longer uh, a real thing in the culture. They are causing trouble again, and in that trouble, his people are crying to him. God is hearing that cry. Again, this is a repetitious theme that we see in the book of Judges. God has heard. He is lifting up not just a judge, but a commander and a king. So when Samuel saw Saul, the Lord said to him, there he is, the man whom I spoke to you. This one shall reign over my people. And this idea of reign, it's to have a firm hold on, but the idea is to restrain, to hold them back, to keep them in that position of Lord, to keep the people from turning to the culture, from turning to their own flesh. King's responsibility is to lead the people towards the true and living God. Verse 18, then Saul drew near Samuel in the gate and said, please tell me, where's the seer's house? So again, Saul has no recognition of who Samuel is. Samuel answered Saul and said, I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place, for you shall eat with me today, and tomorrow I will let you go and will tell you all that is in your heart. What a conversation that must have been. But as for your donkeys that were lost three days, three days ago, do not be anxious about them. Don't set your heart on them. Don't be worried about them. They've been found. 
And he asks this question, and on whom is all the desire of Israel? Is it not on you and on all your father's house? So again, listen to what he's saying. Saul's name means asked for. The culture desires a king. Samuel knows that Saul is the individual appointed by Yahweh to be commander and king. And this is his first statement to Saul. You're the one. You're the man that all of Israel's desire, they want you. What's Saul's response? It's a good response. He answers and said, am I not a Benjamin? Am I not a Benjamite of the smallest of the tribes of Israel? And my family, the least of all the families of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then do you speak like this to me? And literally, it's why then do you speak this word to me? And he has humility. He's not immediately uplifted in pride. And again, this is is an idea for me that carries forward. It's not just in humility. His insecurities are being brought out also. Who am I? I'm from the least of all the tribes. You know, what, why are you saying this word to me that all of Israel's desire is on me? Saul answers and said, or sorry, verse 22. Now Samuel took Saul and his servant and brought him into the hall and had them sit in the place of honor. And again, this is, you have to sit in the Eastern theme of this and the meal that's going on, the position of honor. Samuel is not um, in a position of animosity or anger towards Saul at all. You see a beginning of a friendship and a true love and desire for Saul's success. When Saul fails, God comes to Samuel and tells him to stop mourning for Saul and to get up and go and anoint David as king. So again, this is a very real relationship between these two men puts him in this place of honor among those who were invited. There were about 30 persons. Samuel said to the cook, bring the portion which I gave you, of which I said you set it apart. So the cook took up the thigh and its upper part and set it before Saul. Again, this is the portion of the animal that you give to the person of honor at the meal. Samuel said, here it is, what was kept back, it was set apart for you. Eat. For until this time, it has been kept for you since I invited the people. So Saul ate with Samuel that day. His hospitality continues here in verse 25. says, when they had come down from the high place into the city, Samuel spoke with Saul on top of the house and brings him into his house. He's on top of the house. Again, this is the, the ideal place. It's the best place of the home. It's where the best ventilation is, best place to sleep. They arose early, and it was about the dawning of the day that Samuel called to Saul on top of the house, saying, get up, that I may send you on your way. And Saul arose, and both of them went outside, he and Samuel. So chapter 9, again, gives us a bunch of initial snapshots of Saul's character, progressing the narrative. Chapter 10 is awesome. This is, this, is, this is fabulous, actually. Awesome is fabulous, right? Think of any other adjectives you want to add to it because it's awesome. Verse 27, as they were going down the outskirts of the city, Samuel says to Saul, tell your servant to go on ahead of us. And he went on. But you stand here a while 
that I may announce to you the word of God. Samuel took a flask of oil. Picture him. He's an old man with his staff, has his flask of oil, stands on his tippy toes to get up high enough to pour it on Saul's head. And he kisses him, that Eastern kiss on, on the cheek, respect, honor. This is what he says. Is it not because the Lord, is it not because Yahweh, the creator of the heavens and the earth, the God of Abraham, the God of Jacob, the God of Moses, my God, is it not because the Lord has anointed you commander over his inheritance? What does God want out of this world? You. You are his inheritance only through his son. Verse 2. When you have departed from me today, you will find two men by Rachel's tomb. It's going to give him multiple signs so that Saul is convinced and confident that what Samuel is saying is true. You're going to run into two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zelzah. And they will say to you, the donkeys which you went to look for have been found. And now your father has ceased caring about the donkeys and is worrying about you saying, what shall I do about my son? Donkeys have been found. He knew that his dad was going to be worried. That's all true. But those two men will be assigned to him. What Samuel has just spoken and what Samuel has done is true. Verse 3, then, second sign, you shall go forward from there and come to the terebinth tree of Tabor. There are three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you, one carrying three goats, another carrying three loaves of bread, and another carrying a skin of wine. Now, these guys are going to worship these, uh, the goats, the wine, and the bread. These are all for the sacrifice that they are taking to go and worship God in Bethel. In verse 4, it says, when they greet you, Literally, when they ask about your welfare, they're going to give you two loaves of bread. And this is, this, is a, this is an imagery. What these men are carrying is already in their minds and in their hearts. In reality, this bread is devoted to a sacrifice to the Lord. For them to give it to Saul, is rec- it's in recognition of his anointing. Now remember, when he meets them, he's going to be all greasy. Getting anointed with oil is a messy business. It goes over your hair, it drips into your beard, it drips onto your garments. It is very obvious what has happened to Saul. And so when he leaves Samuel, these men are going to recognize that he has been anointed and they are going to give him something that they consider to be holy and precious and dedicated to the Lord in recognition of that anointing. Verse 5, it says, after, uh, after you shall come to the hill of God, where the Philistine garrison is, and it will happen when you come there to the city that you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with stringed instruments, a tambourine, a flute, and a harp before them, and they will be prophesying. What does that look like? I have no idea. 
Um, it looks like a bunch of madmen even back then. The prophets were a strange breed. You go sit with Elijah as the head of prophets. You sit with Elisha as the head of this class of prophets. Samuel himself is considered to be the head of this class of prophets. What these men are doing as they have come away from a sacrifice, as they are worshiping God, it says that they are prophesying. What are they prophesying? What are they saying? What are they doing? It looks really weird then, it looks really weird to us now, but here the Holy Spirit is upon them and they are proclaiming God's majesty and the things of God and God is giving them words that the culture needs to hear as they are going down the road singing and prophesying the word of God. But then what happens? What is going to happen? Verse six, this is awesome. Then the spirit of Yahweh will come upon you and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. This is literally, you will be changed into another kind of man. That is the new covenant in Jeremiah chapter 31 where God promises to give to us a new heart. This is the context of the New Testament. When you look to faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior, what is the promise? You are no longer the old, dead, disobedient man with the hard heart of rebellious stone. You have bent the knee to your king as your sovereign. He has saved you. He has given you a new heart. He has changed you instantly. He is transforming you throughout your life until that future day. You have the promise that whose image are you going to permanently be in for all eternity? His changed, transformed Samuel, with the word of God in his mouth, his words do not fail. They do not fall. Saul your heart will be changed. You will be a different man today. Now, what you know about Saul, is that true? You better believe it. This man filled with potential, filled with the Holy Spirit, new heart, new mind, doesn't need to be insecure, doesn't need to be ignorant, just needs to trust in his savior. You will be made into another kind of man and let it be when these signs come upon you that you do as the occasion demands why the promise God is with you. These promises, they're the exact same that we have across the pages of the New Testament. You shall go down before me to Gilgal, and surely I will come down to you and offer burnt offerings and make sacrifices of peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait till I come to you and show you what you should do. We don't have that event in the future. Uh, we're gonna pause at a, at a time, a, a gap time. Um, but there's coming a day in, in Saul's future again. He spends a lot of time with Samuel. Samuel is giving him instruction of what it means to follow Yahweh in obedience from this day forward as the anointed one, as one who the Holy Spirit has come upon, as one who has a changed heart. So verse 9, so it was 
when he had turned his back to go from Samuel, that God gave him another heart. And all those signs came to pass that day. When they came there to the hill, there was the group of prophets to meet him. Then the spirit of God came upon him and he prophesied among them. And it happened when all who knew him formerly saw indeed that he prophesied among the prophets, that the people said to one another, what is this? What is going on with Saul? That has come upon the son of Kish. Is Saul among the prophets? Again, this is taking everybody by shock. Outside of what they know him to be in his character, evident to all that something has radically transformed in his life. He's numbered among the prophets. This other guy in verse 12 says, a man from there answered and says, but who is their father in regards to the prophets? I mean, there, there's, you can look at it from different angles. Um, you can look at it from a, a scoffer, which, which is saying, you know, Saul must be among the bad prophets. You know, who's, who's the father of these prophets? Because this can't be true testimony of Saul. Or you can have it from the positive vantage point, just who's their father? Samuel, again, is the, the father, the leader over this group of prophets. So it's conveying to the culture this radical transformation and uplifting of Saul in the culture. Therefore, it became a proverb, is Saul also among the prophets? And when he had finished prophesying, he went to the high place. Then Saul's uncle, this is more than likely Abner, who we're going to see in the future, becomes Saul's general, said to him and his servant, where did you go? So he said to look for the donkeys. When we saw that they uh, were nowhere to be found, we went to Samuel. And Saul's uncle said, tell me, please, what Samuel said to you. So Saul said to his uncle, he told us plainly that the donkeys had been found but about the matter of the kingdom, he did not tell him what Samuel had said. Don't know why. We'll kind of pick up there next week. But I want us to back up to this whole idea of Saul's character that's being presented to us and his foundation. And this is what I want you to just press into in your own relationship with God and know and understand your potential in Jesus Christ. We are told that if you look to your creator, his son, his plans, his purposes, his sacrifice for your sins, his resurrection for your life and for your hope, we look to him daily for the new heart that he's promised, for that daily change, for that transformation. Now, we're all on that even playing field. Through faith in Jesus Christ, every single one of us has been granted a new heart. Every single one of us has a future potential. What's your potential in the Lord right now? As you sit in decisions that you make, as you sit in the decisions that revolve around your relationship with your Savior, what's your potential? We're told the sky's the limit. In the will of God... Whatever he desires, whatever his plans and his purposes are for you individually, that is your ultimate potential. Whether it's high in the culture or low in the culture, totally irrelevant. 
Your potential is measured by your obedience to the one who you say is your king, to the one who you say is your savior. I've asked this question repetitiously. Do you know what God has saved you from? I know the darkness that God has saved me from. I know the filth that he saved me from. I know the insecurities that he saved me from. The anger, the flesh, all my own desires, the world, the culture, death. I know what he has snatched me from. I'm a miserable man when I find myself in that position of disobedience. And I need to come and put my head on the floor before him in confession. I'm sorry. Forgive me. Cleanse me. Wash me. I depend upon your mercy, not giving me what I deserve. I depend upon your grace, giving me what I absolutely don't deserve. Change me. Transform me. Don't take away your Holy Spirit from me. Use me to proclaim your gospel. Use me to encourage and to help and to love, to do your will in this life, to image you. That's what I want. That's my potential. Saul has the same potential. But we know Saul's end. We know David's end. We know Samuel's end. We know Solomon's end, Rehoboam, all these other kings. Saul is going to be tested repetitiously. We are told, Genesis to Revelation, in your relationship with God, you will be tested not for your failure, not for your destruction, but to refine you, to set you apart further to him. So that we're told that in, in metallurgy, in as, as a metal is melted down in the heat and the fire and the, the furnace, it's so that the impurities can be skimmed off the top of the metal. So what is remaining is the image of the refiner, He's looking for his image to be in each and every one of us. My compassion goes out to Saul because of his great potential. Called by God. He didn't raise his hand and say, hey, I want to be king. God called him. God anointed him, appointed him, changed him, transformed him, gave him his Holy Spirit. Saul had everything he needed to be to be a man who loved his creator. And we're going to watch him fail and fail and fail. And his failure is simply not doing what he was told to do. And that always gets back, you know what you've been told to do. Do you spend in the, your time that you need to spend in his word, knowing his law? And not so it's just the Old Testament law, but I'm talking about the New Testament law, the royal law. Do to others as you want to have them do to you. Going that second mile, being radical with sin in your life and cutting off everything that doesn't belong there. Being merciful, being the peacemaker being filled with his love and patience and kindness and self-control, all the fruits that we're told of the Holy Spirit, told that we are to stand in the strength of his power, not of your might. You're weak. You will fail. You are not worthy on your own. 
But does he promise to make you worthy to stand in his presence for all eternity? This is why we sit in the Old Testament right now. The Old Testament gives us all of these pictures, all of these illustrations of New Testament principles. You can sit in all the different instructions that Jesus and his apostles that he sent out for his namesake and the instructions that we have. We have all of these pictures in the Old Testament of men and women who follow him successfully living out their full potential in the Lord. And yet we also have multiple character studies to sit in of those who fail. And Saul is a failure. And when I fail, I crumple. When I see you fail, when I see my brothers and sisters in Christ throughout this world turning away from the Lord, being disobedient to the Lord, making ministry all about themselves, turning away from the Lord and turning to worldly teachings, I crumple because it's sad and it doesn't have to be that way. But you and you alone are responsible for your potential in Jesus Christ. You have a choice every single day. And the exhortation and the the repetitious exhortation is to see just how valued you are. This This is why I have this question mark. I don't know Saul's eternity. But because I know God's grace and because I know God's mercy, I do know that Saul was cut off from kingship. But I don't know if Saul was cut off from God. None of us are so far gone that we've been cut off from him as long as we have breath in our lungs. I hope he's there, but I'm not confident that he is. I hope you're there, but I can have no confidence that you will be because I don't know your heart. You know your relationship with God. I know in whom I believe. I believe in my Lord and Savior as described in this Bible. He is the one who is keeping me. He is the one who is changing me. He is the one who is transforming me. I don't want to turn anywhere else. I'm not looking to turn anywhere else. I get stupid a lot, and I've come back to him, and I trust that he is faithful and just to cleanse me from all of my unrighteousness because he is a faithful and just high priest. His mercy triumphs over his judgment in my life. I will see my king for all eternity. And I want you to have that confidence in your relationship with him. Not through your works, but yeah, through your devotion. Yeah, that when you're off, you're still coming back to him. Where's your trust? Saul's a man who's afraid of people. And because he's afraid of people, he just does stupid things. And then he makes excuses for his stupid. It's not necessary. Own your stupid. Heavenly Father, we love you. We want to know you. We want to hear your voice just as Samuel heard your voice. Lord, uncover our ears. Uncover our minds today. Uncover our hearts. Lord, I am willing to be fully naked and exposed to you. I don't want to hide anything about me. I don't want to hold on to sin. I don't want to hold on to my opinions. I want that true freedom and liberty that's been promised. And I know that that's found in your son.
I know that you've lifted me out of my muck and out of my mire, out of my sin, out of darkness, out of hell, out of death, and you've given to me your life. You have made me clean. Yes, I need my spots washed. Lord, sometimes the the world just passes on by me and it just splatters me with ick and you're there to cleanse me. Sometimes, Lord, in my stupidity and my flesh, I go running and do a big old cannonball into the muck and the mire. And when I wake up to myself, there you are to reach down, to pull me out, and to clean me because you're faithful and you're good and you love me and you value me. What love is this? Who am I, Lord, that you created me? Who am I that you've called me? Who am I that you've given me this new heart and this new mind? Who am I to know the sovereign of the heavens and the earth? Who am I to inherit all that is yours? Lord, I'm praying for all that are hearing my voice. May they know you and love you, pursue you, cherish you, and trust you, Lord, to cause them to live out your plans, your purposes in their life. We celebrate you. We worship you. We long for you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.